Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University, and I'm here with Michael R. Temenko. Um, Michael, I actually knew very little about. Um, his mother-in-law happened to be in London with me on one of my design tours and just said, you should see Michael and, and Emma's house. And um, I said, oh, I'd be fascinated. I'd love to see it And uh, when I return. And what was interesting about the house is Michael just under-delivered it. And when we walked in, my group of um, 60 just said, oh, my God. Welcome to the program, Michael. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, Michael, you studied at RMIT, um, which is... Um, and then uh, you worked for a number of practices, including Kirsten Thompson, and then you decided to start your own practice. I did, yeah. Which was a few years ago. It was. We're into our third year of uh, having figure architecture. Uh, I didn't mention director of figure. F-I-G-R. F-I-G-R, that's right. Um Michael, it must be, you know, there must be a bit of trepidation when you're actually thinking about starting your own practice. Did you have projects on the books, people asking you for things for a while? Is that the initiator? Yeah, I think that's how it starts for most people. I don't think you ever start out without anything on the books and decide, well, I'm going to do this. So friends and family start to approach you. Um, our first project was uh, one of my best friends. He decided to uh, build a house in Beaumaris, so... Um, and like most projects, he gave us a large brief and uh, small budget. Small budget, yeah. So we had to get pretty creative about how we were going to execute and everything that he wanted and what it is that we could offer for him. So, and that was um, that was one of the most the best experiences I've had being an architect, and it's that sort of real first time that I thought I'd love to do this for myself because the reaction when the house was built was just fantastic and it's something that I look forward to every time is seeing people so happy being in the space. How difficult is it or how tempting is it when someone presents you with a very, you know, large brief, small budget, small footprint, you know, to tell them, look, you can't have everything or do you actually try and do everything and then, I mean, how do you approach it? Cause I, it I think you have to be sensible. I, it's very difficult when the brief is well outside of the budget that's when you have to be pretty upfront and say listen um, you might want to reconsider your budget or your brief um, but when we see that there's a little wiggle room and once we start getting into deeper um, briefing from the clients and you're saying okay so there's some luxury items here there's some things that you really want but then there's the things that you really need for this house so how do you then ask your clients, so what can we take out that you want and something that it can be introduced later? And what do we really need? So that's when you start to have an honest conversation. And I do say honest because without that initial honesty and transparency about what the full potential for the budget is and what part of your brief would you still like to retain, um, you need to get that out of the way pretty quickly, I think. Michael, um you started your practice with uh, an architect who also studied at RMIT, yes. Adi Attic. Yes. Um, when you actually, you know, break the news to the client, mm. you know, that they just can't afford everything, yeah. <laughs> how do they take it? I mean, is it kind of that, well, we'll go to the bank and we'll get some more money, uh, or are they quite realistic, you found? I think a lot of the time they're quite realistic, and we've never had an issue where the budget, it's double. And there are stories out there that it's come in double. Um, so 
What look obviously throughout the whole design process, um, we do tend to use a quantity surveyor and just to make sure we're aligning. But what happens at a process where it goes out to the builder for tenders, depending on the markets and other various things, that when they do come back, um, look, there is always a little bit of shock at first. There's no doubt about that. But um, I think once people understand the positives that they get from getting a custom-designed house that has been tailored to them, and then you've gone through a process of you know, a year of design and documentation and planning, then... Um, some things you might leave out, but as long as you get the bulk of it in, the structure, the bones of it, um, you can you can take a few things out and then with time maybe put them back in. So um, we haven't had to deal with an absolute shock before, but having said that, we've have had to pull back and then try and reintroduce things in other ways during construction. It's interesting, the projects that you've been working on, a lot of them have been single-fronted terraces owned by families mm-hmm. who want this large family home. Mm-hmm. Now, I just saw recently on one of my uh, walks, mm-hmm. saw this hideous thing uh, that I walked past. It was a single-fronted terrace. I think it had three levels stuck mm-hmm. on the top. Yeah. It looked like it was bursting at the <laughs> seams. And I thought this is just not designed in a way that is appropriate for a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, both from the street and also I think it, it just looked quite odd. Mm-hmm. Your terraces are actually quite spacious, Mm. even though they still appear very modest from the street. So if we look at your own home Mm -hmm. in Cremorne, Mm -hmm. a really interesting example. From the street, it's very modest. You wouldn't even know Mm. there was anything happening behind it. Tell me about that, because it is quite an interesting concept. You have pushed the boundaries. We have. It doesn't feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I guess when... The decision was made to do something with the house. Um, the luxury we had was we knew how we lived in it and we knew the space that we had and it was comfortable. Um, but we also understood that moving forward and starting a family, we were going to run out of space. And the first approach that we had was we loved the old part of the house and it had history. It had good bones. It had... Memory. It's an Edwardian terrace. Uh, it's a, a Victorian, yeah. So it, it had history to it um, in a colourful place like Cremorne, and we didn't want to get rid of that. So the decision was made early on, let's be as honest as we can to the features and the room sizes. And in turn, we did make them a little bit smaller to get us extra amenity mm. um, for a growing family. Uh, but it's once that we get out to the back, to the extension, that, um, that you see the tra- transformation and that's, I think, what we have done with the houses. We've used every square millimetre in uh, places that we normally might not do it. So, so to explain to you, it's quite a, and it looks simple, but it's not simple. It's not. It's not no. simple. You kind of create. You walk past three standard bedrooms, bedrooms yep. and, a, and a bathroom and mm-hmm. a little um, uh, washing area, a mm-hmm. little laundry, laundry that's yep. concealed off the. A corridor. That's right. And then you work, walk into this lounge area, mm. the lounge room, which is fairly traditional, mm. but that's the point that things change. And you've kind of created, to me, it was quite a Japanese inspired extension where the side boundary mm. is blurred into the house. That's right. Uh, I guess one of the strategies was whenever we do a terrace house, um, you know, it's a luxury when they're uh, detached on both sides. In our case, we're attached on one side, so we share a party wall with our neighbour. Um, for me, the side boundary always 
I felt it's always been a waste. It's an opportunity that people just often forget about. They'll neglect it. They'll say, oh, we'll keep it as a side boundary. Or a garden. Or a garden or whatever. Our strategy was how do we then utilise that side boundary and actually turn it into being part of the house, but still having it as an outdoor space that you can traverse through for future servicing of um, the backyard or the house in general. So one of the strategies I sort of, and everyone's heard this before, less is more. In this instance, less was more that by giving less, slightly less space to our living room and our kitchen, we can give a little bit more space back to the backyard. But then if we're treated in a way that that well, the side area in the backyard becomes the side yard, and then that is the extension of the kitchen. So when you saw it uh, with the were sliding doors wide open, um, that's how we use it on most days. So it's kind of like a veranda, yeah. like an, a front veranda, but yeah. on the side. That's right, on the side. And the other thing is um, where our, our backyard would be west-facing, um, that larger open deck area. And uh, the west, if you can't control it, becomes a very harsh light and it becomes really hot. And the other thing is um, we've got some overlooking issues from our neighbours, the townhouses out the back. So, again, the strategy of bringing it to the side is that you don't get that harsh western light and also you still feel an element Private. of privacy, yeah. yeah. So it's like its own little outdoor room. The other thing that's interesting about the house is very simply uh, uh, done, uh, very well executed, but the use of materials mm. is quite interesting mm. because you've used some very glam materials like Maybe. smoked mirror yes. for the kitchen yeah. splashback, but then you've used very simple fibre cement. That's right. So yeah. it's kind of that play of luxe and simple. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think part of that was to create an identity for those rooms because from day one we said we wanted them to feel like separate rooms. The spaces, you transition. And so... Therefore, we thought, what could be a nice contrast? And also, how, what was the light play with those materials? Mm. And because we're, you mentioned the fibre cementers, that's in our, our living room, which is the back room. And so the contrast between the ceiling material and the fibre cement is a very soothing one. It's a very mm. serene space to be in. Um, and It's very calm. Very calm, that's right. Yeah. I and, mean, I took 60 people through... Mm. And yet there was a sense of tranquility. Mm. It really didn't feel tight at all. No, it didn't. And people wanted to linger. Mm. And I think that's an interesting um, interesting feedback. If people want to linger in a place, even if it's small, mm. then that's something about the space itself. Yeah. Michael, you've recently completed a house in Ascot Vale. We have. Equally small. <laughs> and again, you know, family wanted this mm. big family home, which mm. is becoming quite a trend mm. that people can't afford the large detached house. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for this terrace. It must be a nightmare for architects at the moment because everyone wants these large homes mm. in these small terraces. So tell me about the Ascot Vale house. So that house, again, another terrace, um, I guess one of the luxuries was that um, we could demolish the house because the bones weren't great at all. No heritage no, control. Um, no heritage control, but that didn't change the site. Very long, very tight. and um, Family of two kids? Uh, three. Three kids? Three kids, um, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, lots of other family members that come visit and uh, a sloping site uh, with the north in the worst possible position as well. So um, 
that particular house is called the uh, datum house because we'd really established a datum that we would split from. And uh, what that really meant for us in the offices is that uh, we couldn't do a double story house in the traditional sense because we'd never comply with any uh, res code issues or planning issues for that matter protect our neighbours amenities. So um, the logical thing to do was, was to work with the sloping landscape and split the house. Mm. So the house is split into three levels. Um, even then, though you can't see anything. Even though you can't, it still looks like a single, a single front. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we had to split in a way to keep the cost down, and there's very little, um, I suppose, there's very little excavation and um, any of the building that's emerged into the natural ground. So we had to be quite clever in how we arrange the spaces. And um, one of the more challenging aspects of our presentation to the clients was well, if you want your brief, you're going to have to sacrifice on space. So why don't we have an honest conversation about what needs to be larger and what can become smaller? And so we had to be rather pragmatic about how much do you need for a kid's bedroom? How much size do you need? How much storage do you need? Where can that storage be? How big do bathrooms need to be? How many bathrooms do you need? So all of these questions started to force our clients to really think about this idea of what do we want and what do we need? And because they were able to work with us in understanding about spatial qualities and what makes a good space, what makes a less inviting space, what makes a resting space, what makes a space, you know, what is a good space where you eat, what is a good space where you watch TV, um, we were very quickly able to put back into the house um, what we removed from some of those spaces where it's a bit more, not redundant, but where you spend less time. Yeah. So, uh, in this instance, the kids did get the... <laughs> smaller bedrooms. The smaller bedrooms, yeah. But, but in the that, 50s, yeah. um, kids had smaller bedrooms. I mean, Roy Grounds, generally, Robin Boy, they all had designed small bedrooms yeah. and they were there to to sleep in. That's they right. They weren't there to entertain. No, that's right. And there, there are other supporting spaces that allows them to break out. Mm-hmm. So there's two living spaces. You know, there is a study that's tucked into the, one of the living spaces that overlooks the courtyard. So the way it's been designed, it's been really lovely for everyone to use all of the spaces. And um, that's one of the challenges that we had was, you know, how do we get more for less? Yeah. No, it it is quite a skill. It's an extraordinary mm. skill because you do see a lot of homes now, terrace homes, mm. and really the solution is just the double story extension at the back. I think that's the way to go. Mm. Um, you see it from the street. It looks quite mm. uh, out of scale with the um, the original house, which is really des- you know it could have been designed for a larger family in the nineteen hundreds, mm-hmm. but it just looks wrong. It looks mm. clumsy, mm. and the few houses I've seen of yours, they look. In scale. Yeah. So they don't look overworked. No. And um, I think that's part of our strategy and understanding context. And when we start a design, um, we don't just design the house and work out the surroundings after that. We always start from a context point of view. Um, and also amenity, that's a big one, especially in terrace houses where you really need to understand how yeah. you're going to get natural light in. But also quality natural light yeah. becomes a real challenge so by understanding what our surroundings are we can then um, start coming up with a certainly a formal strategy and how we deal with that and scale is a big issue michael i would say one of the problems of 
doing a number of small terraces as becoming typecast into mm. old Michael from F Figar. Yeah. Um Figar. Um is just a a, a wonder with small spaces. Yeah. But they must be they must get to a point when you go, look, I don't want to do another one. I want more space. I want I want bigger briefs. Yeah. Uh, and and there must come, you know, yeah. I, every architect must kind of dream of being able to kind of have more room to express their ideas um or are you just you're kind of delighted to to nut out the smaller projects look the smaller projects are fun because they challenge you the constraints are always challenging you so that's where you i think you get some really interesting outcomes not to say that and we have done larger projects as well where again some of those thoughts about um, how do you use space uh what is you know, what's a living room, what's a courtyard, what's a kitchen, it, we start to challenge that sometimes and, depend, and depending on our clients. So, look, they are very enjoyable still, providing that there's um, our clients are realistic. So we do select our clients to make sure that we can work together as best we can. So you refuse certain projects? Yeah, look, yeah. I mean, sometimes if it's, I mean, you're going to go on a two-year journey, and if it you don't see, years. yeah, if you don't see eye to eye from the start, and well, I mean, it's just going to, it's not going to work out for either party. And I think the best relationship with a client and an architect is when um, there's transparency, there's honesty, and you share similar values, similar ideas. And um, as a as an architect, you have to be open to. Um, your client's ideas and sometimes their criticism and as a client you have to be open to your architect's ideas and the value that they bring to you as well. It's interesting Mark because I was mentioning before we even sat down that a lot of people think they can do it themselves. Mm. I mean the number of people who are architects now mm. and just well why wouldn't you just do it yourself? Mm. When I see the complexity involved in every job mm. Are you surprised people still just take it on themselves? Yeah, I am. Mm. I, 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 I took this on myself. I do this every day for a living. I've been doing it for 10 years, and I was still surprised about the challenges that came up, even knowing they were going to come up. With so, your own house? Or, with my yeah. own house and obviously our other projects. Even yeah. when you have you have done all of the drawings, you've done all of the research, you've gone through everything. Every consultant. Every consultant, every square millimetre, and then something comes up and you go, oh, how am I going to deal with this? And What are the things that kind of are unexpected that you find? Um, particularly with the older style homes, like the Victorian terraces, you just don't know what condition the old bones are in. And so you don't know what's under the ground. You don't know if your soot, part of your sewer has been replaced, the piping, or it's still the old clay pipe that has cracks in it. So there's a lot of things. You don't know once you start digging whether you're going to have a smooth, uh, smooth operation as far as getting all of the soil out, or you're going to uh, bump into boulders that are the size of footballs that you just couldn't see and then the digger can't get them out because it's only a small digger that has to fit down a 1100 wide side passage so the boys have to do it manually so when the boys have to do it manually it's more, it's more yeah so what should have taken two days can take three weeks so no. they're the things that we just yeah. why, why do people think they can do it themselves i'm because they can't they I mean, can't they can't i don't think they can i haven't seen a successful um, project yet i think in today's day and age with um so much focus on design and architecture and um there's a lot of 
online help. There's a lot of TV shows. There's a lot of information out there that um, uh, I think people think they're equipped with enough to go do it on their own. Um, what that I tell you sometimes is, is once you get stuck and there's a real problem, um, what do you do then? And unfortunately, that happens at the worst possible time. So, and I mean, if you just work directly with a builder, yeah, he comes a cropper, yeah. decides, look, it's too hard for him, the whole thing falls apart. Mm. It's actually very difficult getting an architect oh, involved at that point, because yeah, then right. you that architect's inheriting yeah. a minefield of problems. Yeah, minefield of and problems. And they go, well, I don't and, want it. Yeah, and uh, often when that does happen, um, I don't think anyone's going to be in a positive mind frame to start either. So I think when you're approaching the architect, you're already panicking. You just want to get things done. You want to move forward. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get a positive vibe. And that's a difficult thing. I think when you move into a project that's about to start on site, it's very exciting. You can't hide your excitement. Everyone's there. The slab's being poured. People are you digging think it's their, going yeah, well. Yeah, it's going really well. And so I like for all of our projects to start that way. And when you are on site, things are always going to come up. I mean, there's always going to be um, issues that are arising um, because you've got the knowledge and you may have seen it before. And you can predict. You, you can, it's something you can you can work through them yeah. in a way that isn't going to delay you or add further costs. And that's part of, um, you know, even though people might find a really good architect that can work with that, I also think that the architect's just as good as his builders. Um, because if you if you're not working with um, contractors, builders, um, builders, subbies that are, that all have a similar mentality that we want the best for the job, um, you will bump into problems. So lucky for us, we work with some really good young builders and they're on the same page. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we, we haven't suffered any significant issues on site. Um, Michael, if I said, you know, Looking through a crystal ball, where mm. do you see yourself in five, ten years? What are the type? What's the type of? Um, is domestic work something you'd like to continue with? Because um, a lot of architects just don't want to go near that yeah, area at the moment. I'm sort of. Uh, I read something a while that John Wardle had said that he always likes to have a house in the office. Doesn't matter how big or small his practice has become. Um, I'm of the same mentality. I always want a house on our drawing board. Um, it's how we started. We love the work. Uh, there's a completely different um, emotional engagement that you have with your clients. Uh, and with all of our clients, we become friends afterwards. And that's something I really appreciate. And it's one thing, um, you know, when you're working even on multi-residential projects that they are for commercial uh, um, purposes, that you'll never really get to meet the people that use them. But with a, with a private home, mm. it's, a, it's a real reward. And you it's get a real the reaction. Honor. You get the reaction. And... Um, and that's what keeps us going every time. I, I still, I just love that reaction when people walk through, the doors open, everything's been cleaned and you get that. <gasps> and I just, to me, that's, yeah. it's amazing. It's an yeah. amazing feeling. Well, look, I, look, I really get to see an awful yeah. lot in yeah. my career. Um, I mean, every day I'm looking at projects and I'd have to say the reaction that I got and the people I took through your house yeah. a few weeks ago was extraordinary, uh, really quite extraordinary. Yeah. And... It's something you can't actually um, verbalise. Mm. I don't think you can. I think when you see something that's quite special, mm. you don't say anything really. You just soak it in. Yeah. You enjoy it. You kind of think how you kind of. I think the thing that goes through my mind is why is it working so well? Mm. What and it and it just does. Mm. 
sister. Um, and so when I see a great piece of work, you know it. You don't have to say anything. No, yeah, I, I know what you mean as well. It's it was a treat. Mm. It's a treat. And um, the only thing for myself, because I saw it every almost every day, the process. I don't think I never got to appreciate what was happening. So. I, I guess I kind of live through the people that walk through it and provide that reaction um, both mm-hmm. for myself and my mm-hmm. family because they got to see it through as well. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's very nice. And, um, uh, you know, we do appreciate when we, when yeah. we see that. Um, thanks so much for coming on the program, Michael. Mm-hmm. You've been, um, I've been speaking with Michael R. Tomenko, director of uh, Figure Architects. And you've been listening to Stephen Crafty talking design at RMIT. Thanks so much for listening.